Hosted Sister Podcast, I'm Andy Murphy. Thank you for listening. I hope you're holding up all right in quarantine and you're staying safe and clean. I'm not going crazy anymore. I'm used to working from home by now, but I'm still incredibly busy. So I decided to get some editing help from a friend. Uh, Sol Traverso helped edit this episode. So thank you, Sol. He did a great job. So let's get right into it. in September, yes, September 2019, I went to the Red Lake Nation Food Summit in Minnesota, and I talked with several folks about food, and I ate really, really good. Man, I couldn't get enough of that fried and smoked walleye. So delicious. Uh, if you want to see gorgeous photos from this trip, they are at ToastedSisterPodcast.com. My name is Bejiku Gabo. And can you tell me what you're doing here today? Oh, I'm uh, doing some deep frying some walleye. How important is walleye here? It seems like it's really important. It's a, one of our main staples around here. Always has been that thing out there, that lake out there. That's our freezer. That's our storage. That's where we get our food from. Some of it. Yeah. Do you do you fish? Every chance I get. They say I'm a legend around here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get it in there while I get the chance, man. No, I fish. I fish all the time. You know, hook and line on lake, ice fishing, pulling out fish. I'm old school. I've been fishing for 50 years. Better made. Yeah. And this. Um, this is a special recipe. Oh yeah. But I'm giving it away today. Give it away. You ready for some? Yeah. Whoa, here you go. You know, how important is um, this this kind of event here today, sharing this kind of knowledge with everybody? Oh, it's it's been going on for four years here, and, and it's, it's good to try to see our people getting back to the food they're supposed to be eating, you know, the fish and the deer meat, the corn, the berries, all of this, you know, the stuff that the Creator meant for us to, to be eating, the, that He gave to us. So it's good that we're bringing this back and hopefully it catches on, you know. Us elder people, we're not going to be here much longer, so it's up to the younger ones to get a hold of this and know what to do. Deb Smith from the Red Lake Nation was chatting with folks about ancestral agriculture. 
All right, so you have an array of veggies here, and um, I see the, um, the sunflowers here. Can you tell me about the sunflowers? They look so pretty. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, the sunflowers are actually originated from the Arikara Nation, which is located in North Dakota, and they're grown in a way that um, relies on just the natural rainfall. That is, um, I only watered it once this year, and so we would kind of rely on what is available, you know, for their growing. They are um, quite tall. Many of them are 10 to 12 feet tall. Some of them are single bloom and multiple blooms, so they're really quite, uh, quite gorgeous. The kind of the story behind the Arikara sunflower is that Lewis and Clark expedition had brought some seeds back to uh, Washington's garden, so they're. They continue to grow in Virginia today in, in that garden. I have also some squash that get to Okasoman that is here. And then I also have just um, some Hadatsa shield bean, which is a lovely uh, bean that um, is prized for its creaminess and tenderness. Uh, these are actually very immature, so they haven't really fully matured. Once they're matured, they have a red and white coating on them and they're a dry bean. And what are some of those grasses there? Yes, the grass there is the sweet grass, uh, which is um, used for purification and for smudging. And I also brought some seeds so we can demonstrate how, what it looks like in the, in the natural setting. There was a rumor going around about the Gediacosamon squash. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Sure. There, there is um, kind of an internet story around it, and that, that story is that these... Uh, seeds had been found in a, a clay pot in a in a cave in Wisconsin and that they were uh, ancient 800 years old and now that I guess has been debunked but we do know that the Miami tribe had uh, used these seeds and and populated these squash and continued use in now in Minnesota through gardens throughout northern Minnesota Nice. And where did you learn how to garden? I'm a third generation gardener. My uh, grandmother and my mother are gardeners here on the Red Lake Reservation and have, you know, maintained, you know, beautiful flower as well as vegetable gardens and you know, they were canners. I'm not a canner, but that's their their specialty. But I'm a third generation uh, Red Lake gardener and really appreciate that I could grow some Native American crops in a space near the Fond du Lac Reservation in northern Minnesota. Is this a special kind of space connected to a group, or is it just you? No, it is. It is with a specialized group, and in fact, some of the folks that are um, were part of the development of that program are here. But primarily, the idea was to uh, bring in some Native American producers to have a space to grow and develop whatever crops they want to, and develop a business plan around it, so then they could take their products to market. All right. What is, um, you know, take their products to market? What's one of the things you see maybe hindering that kind of process here? Well, with many Native American producers, you know, I think we're kind of um, new to the process of actually selling, selling products out in the open and being visible at farmers markets. There's very few Native American products you can see at farmers markets. So I think it's kind of opening up a way of, of, bringing these foods into the mainstream. 
how's it feel to be here um, looking at all this, having all this food and sharing all these stories with people? Well, it is it is a great thing to be out here and, uh, you know, feeling the wind and hearing the wind, being in a sunny spot near near the beautiful lake of uh, Red Lake, the largest inland lake in northern Minnesota and the largest inland lake in the state of Minnesota. And so it's, it's a good thing that we're all here together sharing different uh, food stories and, and seed stories so that we will learn from each other. Next, I met with Veronica Kingbird Bratvolt. I had a few cups of her delicious tea and needed to know a little bit more about it. My name is Veronica Kingbird Bratvold. I am from the Red Lake Nation. And um, you are here manning the tea booth. Um, tell me a little bit about the this tea here. There's two kinds. Oh, okay. So um, I have two different types of teas that I'm showing today. Actually, there's three, but one of them I didn't make. Um, I harvested them, but I didn't make them. So the first tea that I made is rose hips with mullein, sweetened with chokecherry syrup. The second tea that I have is Labrador, a.k.a. Swamp Tea. And then there's sweetgrass in there and cedar in there. But then the, there's a third one that's wild plums that I harvested and some sage. It's very tart. We didn't sweeten it yet. But the other ones, one of the ones, the ones with swamp tea, I sweetened with maple syrup. And then um, the one with rosehip and mullein, I sweetened with chokecherry syrup. Well, I've always been a forager growing up, but I never really got to do too much with it growing up, you know, just everyday lifestyle that we have to live. I, I kind of got disconnected from it, but it wasn't until I, I attended the Leech Lake Tribal College in Cass Lake, Minnesota. I attended that school, and from there I started learning, learning about the ecosystem and some of my science and environmental classes. So that really started my passion for and like the environment and getting back into that um, field. But also, I love the tribal college so much that our tribal college is only a two-year college, so I had to go to another university to study. But because I love the tribal college so much, I decided that I would find internships in the summer between my other classes at a different university. So I would travel back home, which was at least three hours, um, to do internships in the summer. And um, I got a couple internships helping on a field guide where I would go into the woods, take pictures of whatever plants that I could see. I'd find their common name, their scientific name, and more importantly, their Anishinaabemo name, so their Ojibwemo name. So that really sparked my interest and to learn about, um, to learn who these plants are, their Ojibwemo name really just enforced all of our teachings as Anishinaabe people. Um, so I got to see the worldview through our Ojibwe-specific lens um, rather than a, like the Western lens. So that's really what triggered my interest in it. So I just continued to do it throughout my years in college. And I decided to move back home after college because I knew that my nation, the Red Lake Nation, that we are a closed nation, so we, all of our land is intact and we have this beautiful environment and ecosystem. And I was excited to move back and actually 
learn about the plants in my area and so I just started getting field guides and from the field guide that I helped with I'd bring that out into the field and look and now I'm buying different kind of field guides to help identify different plants but I particularly really enjoy making teas and berries are one of my favorites to identify so I'm just I'm just getting into that but you know, it's a learning process. I have a lot of teachers and all the stuff that I know and I'm learning that that is all gifts from other people. And when I teach other people, I don't even use the word teach. I, when I share this information, I always say that it's a reciprocal relationship because the people I'm talking to, I'm just helping them remember certain things and they're helping me remember certain things like about who we are as Ojibwe people. You know, I was hoping to see more of our own community members here and like the children from our community here. I haven't seen too many, but what I was very impressed with, and I could be biased, is my nephew, who's a youth. He was actually filleting fish and talking to people about how to fillet fish. Even though he's my nephew and I'm with him constantly, um, it's always surprising when you put a child in there environment and let them blossom and give them the platform that they need to actually use their gifts you know and that's that's one thing too that I received from a tribal college is they were they gave me the platform to shine whereas you know other western I guess places that we're in don't really give us indigenous peoples a platform to shine. What are some of the health properties of these teas here? I'm really humbly going to say that I don't really like to talk about the medicinal qualities of these plants and these beings because first and foremost, I think that my teachings have always shown me that, that there's only certain people that can really have that gift to talk to the spirits to get those, I guess, medicinal kind of things that you need to heal yourself. I am not a healer. So I don't really, I don't want to treat anybody in that way. What I will say is that, you know, these plants have come to me one way or another, whether it's somebody teaching me, whether it's I notice them and learn about them, but I never want to share what are their medicinal qualities because I, I don't want them to doctor themselves and forget that there's a protocol with that. There's a spiritual protocol that you need to go with that. And that goes back to some of the questions that I had today about my teas is, well, what about toxics? What do you do about the toxic stuff? But I have to tell them, too, that you have to remember that these plants, like when you're working with them, they're, they're spiritual beings. And when you're working with these plants, if you're making teas, if you're hoping to get receive something from them, that you, there's protocol with that. There's a spiritual connection with that. And you have to trust those plants. You can't... Um, you just have to have faith in them and you have to trust them. And, and, and if I tell people this is what you're going to get from these plants, this is vitamin C or antioxidants and all this stuff, then they're going to forget that connection that they're meant to have as Anishinaabeg people. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it that way. And I guess, you know, a lot of people, especially, um, you know, learning a whole new Western system of just consuming food, we've never really looked at things like that. But the, we're starting co to connect with food in that way. How do you see, you know, the community here making more of those kinds of connections? And, and how are they doing it by events like this? 
Um, yeah, I think events like this is are very important, especially when the community gets together. I think all tribal nations or all indigenous communities should start looking in their own communities to what are our own community members doing and what do they have to offer and really you know give them that platform to shine and to share their knowledge because the knowledge that they've received are most likely the teachings that were given to them from our own tribal nations for generations and to keep those intact but also to value what each other has to to offer because we know that with colonization we tend to be too hard on ourselves and we have this mentality that somebody from a different place is more of an expert than somebody that we live in the same community as you know so I know that um, I've been making a lot of friendships with people who are working in the food systems and trying to you know exert their sovereignty with working with food harvesting and growing um, and and I think what it, what it comes down to is we need to start talking to each other again. We need to start visiting each other again. I remember growing up, we would go to people's houses and visit for hours. We don't do that anymore, and we're too afraid to ask each other what do we what do we know or even have a dialogue with one another to to maybe bring out something that each other knows. We're too quick to jump to outside sources even non-indigenous sources to learn our own practices that are for us and it's important that we do that because we're going to miss out on those protocols we're going to miss out on those spiritual connections that are meant for us and only us um, even with our own offerings that we have like we speak to the creator in our own way and if we're not getting our teachings through that way, then we're missing out on how we're supposed to be talking to our creator. As that's meant for only us. Does that make sense? I don't know. I kind of get all, what's that word? Philosophical. <laughs> but I do see a lot of people um, wanting to learn. And I've, I've done a lot of food demos throughout the year. I was a nutrition educator where I really talked about the connection with the food. But... Um, I'm starting to see more people get interested in it and you know because we all live in these um, these food deserts it's really hard for us to do that but I have to remember like I have to remind others too that yes we live in a food desert as far as our grocery stores go and as far as like our like fast food goes but as far as like the abundance of wild foods that we have and land base that we have to grow like we don't live in a food desert we just have to help each other re remember that i just wanted to share one thing because i think it's very important and whenever we're working with these plants whenever we're walking in the woods um whenever we're in the garden whenever we're outside whenever we can possibly do it we should remember that we should be wearing our moccasins, getting our feet to the ground to get those energies from our mother. And when we're in the woods, there's a reason why we feel good because of those energies. And we're all made up of energy, but because of how our life has come to be the way it is, we, we have blockages from our connection and those energies. Like every f shoe that we wear is, has um, rubber so that's blocking that connection that we would receive through our mother to heal us and 
to make us feel good and help with our mental health, our physical health. Um, we have to remember to continue to do that and to sing our songs when we're in the garden because, um, you know, there's scientific things that say that if we talk well to our plants or, you know, do things like that, that they'll, they'll grow beautifully. So I think we just have to keep remembering that um, that we just need to remember that spiritual part and that energy part and everything's not physical anymore. You know, I mean, it, I mean, it is physical, but we need to we've become so detached, you know, from our spiritual realm and our the energy force that we really need to remember that. My name is Dan Kimwan. I am uh, Tree Fires on the Shinabe. I am from uh, Wequemekong, Ontario, Canada. They brought me in here. They brought me to Red Lake to do uh, a corn teaching. Um, I, I like corn with ashes, traditional way, traditional way. You say wood ashes, right? Yeah, uh, maple wood ashes, maple wood ashes. So I use, traditionally I use uh, maple, maple ashes, but you can use other hardwood. But for me to use maple ashes, um, my mom did it that way, and it has medicine in it. Like all plant, all plant life has medicine, and that's the stuff I use. And I explain what ashes can do for you, what the warriors used to carry around, what it what it did for them, and like ashes is a medicine. You can eat it. It'll filter your kidneys. So there was nothing wrong with uh, having a little bit of ashes in your corn. Yeah, and um, that's kind of like uh, nextimalizing is what yes, you were doing that, today. That's what, exactly what it is. Uh, what do you call it? Nisaisin. That's the word for nisaisin. And if we don't use that ashes in there, uh, we, we can't eat the corn because it's not, there's no protein in it. When we use the hardwood ashes, the maple ashes, it gives it that protein, the nisaisin it needs to be edible. That's the way I learned. That's I know I've been carrying this way for a long time. I've I've seen this done in the 60s. My mom used to do this in the 60s on top of a wood stove. So imagine how hot the house got. Yeah. So you know, or in the summertime they would do it outside. So I'm I'm carrying a tradition my um, my mom left me. Okay, it's it's cultural. So I carry that well. Everything that I got taught by my parents, it's cultural. So. It's giving back to society. For me, this is giving back to society because I know some, well, I know quite a bit of teachings, so I just pass what I know. So I'm not taking nothing with me when I die. I'm leaving it here for the people. They'll say one day, or they'll say, uh, Dan, Kim was here, made corn. Now he's gone. Now he made the best corn, made best corn soup. So something like that, right? I just want to leave a legacy behind, and hopefully my kids will pick it up and carry on. And that's... What I'm trying to do with my sons, I like my I took my youngest boy to Sundance. He danced for me a couple of years ago, and tried to take these guys to Sundance. Um, opened their eyes to a new, um, to that red road that I follow, that straight straight red road. And it's a better life. It's a good life that road. It takes you far. You meet friends. It takes you off the reserves, and it makes you feel so good after you go visiting all weekend and go home. You got a heavy heart with love and friends. So that's why I came here. It's about what I got to teach and show. And, um, you know, today we uh, watched you clean corn, clean out, you said, a bunch I, of hearts. Or what, what did you do right there? 
Oh, um, I got a picture of it too. Oh, when I was cleaning, the, those hearts ain't ready to come out. That's the taste of the corn. Okay. okay. Um, what I was trying to do was, um, I'm trying to, um, with the ashes, I uh, shed the corn so you don't have the kernel. You know, when you eat popcorn, you get kernels stuck between your teeth and all that. So this, this is what I'm burning out of it. I'm using the ashes. So after that, and that corn becomes edible very nutritious food. You can just eat it plain, you can make soup, you can make anything you want out of it. Right. On, on Navajo Nation, where I'm from, we use uh, juniper ash, yeah. and we put it in a lot of a lot of different stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, it's, ash is good for you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like it's medicine. That's all it is. It's just, there's nothing else to say about it. It's just medicine that we, they just have to know how to use it. So, and you're from way down south. Actually, when I was in the food summit in, um, the Guajic in uh, Michigan there there was an older lady maybe she's in her 70s in her 70s anyways I think she came from New Mexico I can't remember her name but she gave me a little pack of corn little about maybe 100 100 little pieces of corn so um, and she says this is my great great grandfather's corn so I, so I like she gave it to me and I said okay Right on. So I want to plant that. So it's it's like you said. As she's seventy, and her great grand great grandfather must have been in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. So if they planted corn, well, they, what you guys should do if if you are going to plant corn, the first year, don't give it away, put it away, then seed it again, maybe for five years till you get abundance, till you get tons and tons. Yeah. Then you can sell it or whatever you want to do with it. But you just gotta, we just have to make sure because a lot of times we're losing our um, our cultural uh, like corn, squash. We lost a lot of that in Ontario. We don't we like over here in the states. They know more about it than we do. But there's there's a few people that know about our cultural what well, what was grown here in North America. You know that's. So we have a lot of stuff here in North America that's been here that was never brought to us, and we just have to go back to it. A lot of times, a lot of times we're just going to the grocery store to have a. Nobody doesn't want to go out and get their own food no more. Like what I did here, that mean that corn, it took me four hours. But in the end, everybody loved it. I loved it, and the soup was good. So. Again, if you want to see photos from this trip, go to the website ToastedSisterPodcast.com. But don't go away just yet. This episode's not over. Here's my short interview with Kevin Finney. So my name is Kevin Finney. I'm, I live in uh, West Michigan. I live um, over along the Rabbit River, the Wabozo's EB, and um, by Gun Lake Potawatomi. And um, I'm not a Native person, but I... Um, uh, I was adopted by a Native family, um, by George and Sydney Martin. And um, Sydney is a uh, um, Gun Lake Potawatomi, and George is a uh, Lakoudre Ojibwe. And, um, and my brother and sister, are Dave and Punkin Shinaniquat, and Shannon Martin. And um, they, uh, they've been really good influences in my life. And I've lived in Native community for most of my life. And, and um, I've had really good teachers, and, and this has been my path. Yeah, so um, I make birch bark baskets, um, like uh, I guess we we macaque is what you call it in Ojibwe, and um, they're a traditional basket for for foraging and for food storage. So I'm making them out of birch bark and sewing them with spruce root and carving the black ash rims. 
what kind of function do these baskets have now? Because they look like they look like pieces of art. Yeah, um, they are pieces of art, I guess. But um, a lot of people who make baskets today, like the um, people buy baskets and they just put them on a shelf and they like to display them. But I think that um, when it comes to food sovereignty, especially like our our food sovereignty systems and our food systems are not really healthy unless they involve lots more than just what we normally think of. Like um, if we utilize our baskets for their purposes, like to store our food, to gather our food, then um, we're adding a lot of value um, to what we're doing because we are incorporating those trees into our food systems. We're incorporating our basket makers within our communities. Um, and we're doing something which is, uh, is done in a right way, in a really good way. So like they're all very functional. Like at my house, um, I I have baskets all over, but they're they're in the kitchen and, and the cupboards, and they're full of like maple sugar or wild rice or things like that. I follow you on Facebook, yeah. and you you do a lot of uh, foraging. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a pretty avid forager. Um, as much as I can, I, I travel a lot because I work with um, a lot of uh, indigenous communities, both in the Great Lakes within um, the U.S. as well as in um, in Canada with First Nations in Ontario. So it makes for interesting foraging because uh, um, I'm not usually at home. Um, I do sugar at home in the spring and uh, have a sugar bush, but um, because I travel and I travel with a, a group of people that I work with, like we get to go to different communities and do a lot of foraging with those communities. So we're always learning and being able to harvest a lot of really good food. And um, you make that uh, maple vinegar, right? Yeah, I make I make maple vinegar. Um, it's something that in the last probably ten years I've gotten really excited about. Um, I learned about it because uh, we were working on a, um, developing a tribal sugar bush at home in Michigan, and um, we did a lot of research. Like we, it, the sugaring there hadn't been done really since maybe the late '60s or 1970s, but there was a lot of older people who still had memories of it. So we had to kind of go off of what they were telling us they remembered and how things were done and then trying to just learn on our own from what resources we could find. And part of our process of doing that was to read everything we could about um, about the Anishinaabe sugar bushes in the old days and how things were done. And I came across three different early writings that talked about at the end of the season, the last sap, the last um, sugar that was made was dark and maybe a little bitter flavored. As the sap was changing, it was made to vinegar. And so they, the way that it was written wasn't really like instructional. It was more someone observing. So then from there, we had to understand like, well, what is vinegar and how is vinegar made? Um, and we did learn that, you know, vinegar is when something ferments in the introduction of yeast, either natural yeast from the environment or a yeast which is intentionally added. And um, it turns the sugars into alcohol. So really you're, you're making alcohol, but the alcohol evaporates off and what you have left is vinegar. And so um, we tried um, a few times. I, I think our first batch smelled like really bad malt liquor. It was not good. Um, and then from there, we, we didn't give up. We kept working on it. Um, and then uh, we started making vinegar that turned out really good, but it was really, really um, potent vinegar. And, and um, it didn't have the maple flavor so much. So we began to tweak our way of doing it until we got it where we think it's just right, which is kind of like... Um, it, it definitely ha tastes like vinegar, like um, kind of like apple cider vinegar. You can taste the apples and the, the, the cider flavor. But in this, like you taste the maple and a little bit of the sweetness as well. 
What do people usually make with that um, vinegar? I've seen people make salad dressings, but how else would um, you be able to use it? It's a super functional product, so um, there's a gazillion ways to use maple vinegar. Um, One of my favorite ways is um, uh, something that uh, um, Carly Shananaqua does at home in Michigan, and, and she uses it as a marinade. Um, for meat like you could take a roast and like marinate it in that maple vinegar for a few days and what it does is it it breaks down some of the um, the tougher parts of the meat and the connective tissue and it just makes the meat really fall apart and you get a little bit of that sweet and sour flavor Um, it's also really good on things like um, potatoes my um, my friend ed pigeon he makes a um, really killer french fry loaded french fries where he makes uh, like homemade french fries and then he puts maple vinegar on it and then he adds like um like I think feta cheese and sriracha and it's like a it's a really good like late night snack um something else that people do a lot and I I really grown to like doing this is and it was done historically as well is add it to tea so if you make like a cedar tea or um, really any traditional tea you can add a little shot of that maple vinegar and it gives it a, a sweet sour tart flavor to your tea and it's really healthy for you. It's really good. Just like um, it's kind of a trend lately of everyone using apple cider vinegar and live vinegars. It's a live vinegar, so it's it's probiotic for you and really really healthy for your body. So back to your baskets. Where where did you learn how to make them? I learned about twenty five years ago. Um, I I was a, had a chance to to meet some folks up in northern Michigan who were um, who were making baskets, and I was just interested in and learn how to peel a birch tree and learn the basics. And um, from there, I I just kept trying to do it on my own. And um, over time, like I would meet a lot of different people who who made baskets and they were able to give me different pointers on uh, like my my spruce roots and on um, how to be able to do different stitches. And it's kind of been a long learning curve of uh, learning in that sort of way. And then as far as like the rims and the carving, I had a good friend at home he just passed away recently. His name is Steve Pigeon, and he was a black ash basket maker. And he learned from his father. His name was Ed Pigeon. They were, uh, they, their whole family was black ash basket makers. And, and he really taught me how to, like, go out and take a tree apart and, like, really be able to split it and understand how the wood works and how the growth rings work. And so that's really how I learned to, like, do my whittling and carve, like, the handles and the rims and things like that. And then uh, I started making birch bark canoes because I was looking at the um, baskets and the canoes and I could see they were made like just like big fancy versions of my basket that you'd float in. And um, the, all the cedar ribs were made the same way that Steve made um, his basket handles. And so um, I understood how to do those things, but then it was a really long learning curve to try to make ba- like a canoe, you know, but a canoe is just like a, it's a basket and it's uh it's functional it's like a a basket that that like you float in in order to get things like fishes or aquatic plants or things like that um have you been out in one of your canoes yeah i've been out in a lot of my canoes um i just i've so here at red lake i've I've been up here I, i ran home for a few days before this event but i was up here for um a whole month um before this in panema um, and we, we built a birch bark canoe, a 16-foot canoe with a community with an organization called Amani do Ogitakan, which is uh, based locally here in northern Wisconsin or northern Minnesota. It was a, it was a really nice canoe. And uh, in fact, actually, as we were here yesterday at this event, then uh, uh, Zach and uh, Caitlin 
they they had that canoe out and they were racing in it and were out gathering lily roots. So they were sending me pictures of themselves out in the canoe. All the canoes are all really functional and and I think that once again it's a really powerful tool to utilize and connect with as a part of our food system and our way we get our foods. What was it like for you that first time taking, you know, your first canoe out? Oh my gosh, that's such a magical feeling. Like it's still a magical feeling when you go out to the bush and you harvest the bark and you harvest all the trees and at first you just have a, a pile of just logs and bark and roots and and then after this long period of time, you know, and all this work, you, you create this thing that looks really beautiful, but when you climb into it for the first time and you're just gliding over the water and you're feeling everything and the motion of the water and you're traveling in it, it's like you really realize, like, I created a vehicle. I created something that that I helped to give birth to that is um, is powerful, and, and it's a very magical feeling. There's nothing like it. You know, you deal a lot uh, with, of course, the environment and plants, and um, so you're you're kind of witness to any kind of uh, changes that might be happening in the environment. Is there anything that maybe you are concerned about when it comes to just the health of the the, the environment? Yeah, there's actually a lot that I'm concerned about. Um, I think everyone's concerned because things are changing, and I think they're changing in ways that we can't understand and we can't predict, you know, like just I'm thinking about this year um, being in the woods, like we were at Saugeen First Nation in Ontario on Georgian Bay, and it was a time when the bark should have been peeling, like in that community, the way that they tell when the bark is ready is when the, the trillium flowers begin changing from white to pink. That's when it should start. And um, it didn't start, and even a month after that, the bark didn't peel. It wouldn't loosen up off of their trees. And there was a lot of places this year where bark didn't peel. And I have friends on the East Coast who are build canoes and make baskets, and they, they, they weren't able to harvest bark. In other areas, the bark peeled really good, but I think that maybe the trees are um, their way of dealing with whatever the changes in the environment is uh, they like they want to be generous and give us what they can to help her take care of us and provide us with life, but they have to preserve themselves as well. So I think they're going into you know some sort of shock or some sort of a um, really protective time when they're they have to look out for themselves, and that's something we noticed at the same time when we were out picking bark this summer, and it would have been in the second week in July, um, we came across something I've never seen, and that was strawberries blueberries and raspberries all in one spot ripe at the same time so the strawberries they 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 ripened they didn't ripen in june when they normally do they waited and then they waited till july and they came on at the same time as the blueberries and the raspberries and those usually are three different times but they happened all at the same time this year and then right before i came here i went up to northern michigan to go do some ricing on a little river there where there's some good river rice and i spent two days knocking rice and we pulled off on the side of the river, and there was uh, blueberry bushes. You know, there's two kinds that grow there. There's one that's close to the ground and one which is maybe tall, like knee height. And the ones that were knee height were just full of ripe blueberries. And there was just acres of blueberries that were ripe. So we picked a lot of blueberries, but the blueberries are never ripe during the rice time. Like, that's the first time I've ever seen that. So I think that there's a lot of changes which are happening in the environment. In my own thought on it, and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like the thing that scares me most is that we as human beings think that we need to get ahead of this. Like, 
we need to come up with these management plans to manage our forests and how are we going to prepare and i really think that um that's like the worst thing we could do is because we're we're not as wise we're not as smart we're not as we're, we don't know what's going on like the trees are already aware they already know and the animals know we're the last ones to know and so us being able to come up with these like complex climate change plans and how we're going to manage the forest and make these decisions seems like really bad idea you know like what we need to be focusing on is um not messing up our environment we need to focus on getting away from the fossil fuels we need to focus on being sustainable in what we're doing and we need to understand that the earth is changing and that we may have to change along with it and i don't think this is the first time that the earth has changed it's changed many times we know that from traditional stories and teachings and um like another thing that happened too was um not this year but last year for our sugar bush um normally the sugar where i live it it starts in um late february beginning of march but it started in january and um a lot of people got mad at me because i tapped early and they were saying well you shouldn't tap so early because it was like the first week in january but there's a constellation that comes up and there's three stars that are in a row and that's always what signals the sugar bush when it comes up straight in the horizon and that and it's a week to the sap runs and that constellation was up and i thought well that's curious it doesn't usually come up now but it told me it was time to get ready for sugaring so i started getting ready and then that week i seen the red squirrels were tapping and they were getting sap and i seen the the um woodpeckers were getting sap and i thought well the woodpeckers and the the red squirrels they can't be wrong they know what's going on and the constellation is right so i tapped and i got two and a half weeks worth of sap run and then it stopped and it started again and and it was on and off but um but i think that we just have to understand that we're going to have to change our ways a little bit and i think we have to be really respectful of what's going on with our plant relatives and our tree relatives and our animal relatives because some of them are really stressed right now from the changing climate so we have to be really respectful when we're harvesting just like with the birch bark you know if it, if the tree doesn't want to give its bark it doesn't want to give its bark and um maybe it can't and we have to respect that we can't just try to pry it off the trees or um we really need to be thinking about those things we need to pay attention to what the trees are doing and what the animals are doing because if they're doing things in a certain way then we should probably be doing it that way too That was at the fourth annual Red Lake Nation Food Summit in Minnesota. If you want to support the Toasted Sister podcast, tell all your friends about this show. Visit the Give and Buy page on the website where you'll find a few black Toasted Sister coffee cups left. I sold out of all the zines and stickers. And once the coffee cups are gone, I'll start designing another merch item.
Toasted Sister, supported by the Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation. It plays regularly on The River, that's R-I-V-R, Rising Indigenous Voices Radio, on KCZY, Navajo Technical University's radio station, and on KGLP in Gallup, New Mexico. Intro and outro music was created by C.W. Ione. Check out this band's music on Bandcamp and at cwayone.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Andy Murphy. Andy Murphy.